you were to ask Jess what kind of TV shows Matt likes, um, somewhere on that list, she would probably mention uh, true crime documentaries. I don't know, I've, I've just here lately been into courtroom dramas, but real life ones, not like the fake stuff. Um, and uh, she, she'd probably mention that somewhere on the list, probably because not so much for her. <laughs> she, she'll walk in and, are you watching another one of those documentaries again? Uh, she, she, she does not enjoy watching them with me, but I like them. And, and as I watch, I've watched several now, and I've had this thought numerous times as, as I've watched these, these courtroom scenes unfold that, that I can't imagine anything more dramatic or nerve-wracking than standing on trial for your life, essentially, in some of these cases. Um, whether innocent or guilty, standing before a judge and standing before a room full of people, in particular jurors, that are going to, in a short time, decide your fate. In some cases, whether you will live or die. Um, just that moment, I just can't imagine. And then watching it unfold, as this is at your own trial, and watching witnesses come onto the stand, and they're examined and cross-examined, and it's, a, it's, a, it's almost like a game, these, these, these lawyers asking these questions and trying to, to get the truth out so that everyone in the room can understand. And then once all of those witnesses have been examined, the defendant himself brought forth to the stand, and man, the tension, the, the, the atmosphere, the tension is just so thick you could cut it with a knife as he's telling his side of the story and being examined and cross-examined. And then after testifying, that huge moment, that, that moment that, that the, the, the climax of the show has, you know, has built and, and everything's been leading to this moment, the tension is at an all-time high. The jury walks back into the courtroom and they read their verdict. The verdict comes and they read whether they've found the person innocent or guilty. Um, it's just a it's just a tense moment, a dramatic moment, um, and I think in our text this morning we have a couple trials before us. And as you've heard the text read, you may think, well, I only only see one trial in the text, and that's Jesus's trial before the high priest Caiaphas' house. Caiaphas's house. But Mark is actually writing in a certain style. He's weaving together this narrative in a way that we'll actually see two, two trials. Now remember, Mark is writing to the suffering church in Rome, uh, hated for their Christianity, hated for their, um, their religion, their belief in Christ. And, and Mark is intentionally demonstrating the, the failure of one man, Peter, on trial, and the steadfastness, the faithfulness of the Son of Man, Christ, uh, in his trial. And it's meant for the church of Rome to be a lesson in faithfulness. What does it mean in the midst of, a, of an unhospitable culture when you're hated for your faith for your convictions what does it mean to be to stand firm to stand on your convictions i think that should probably sound familiar for us certainly in the united states we're not enduring persecution like they were in rome in this day but our country's growing increasingly unhospitable to conservative christianity to christian convictions to biblical christianity I think so Mark gives us an example of faithfulness amidst trial. Faithfulness uh, when your beliefs are being questioned, when the truth is being sought. How do you remain true and, and, and faithful in those moments? But um, R.T. France says that this is more than just that. It certainly, it certainly can be that, teaching the church at Rome, here's faithfulness, unfaithfulness, here's Peter, here's Jesus. But 
R.T. France says this is the climactic moment of the entire gospel. Mark is presenting his paradox that just as, as a reader of a story, if you'd never heard the gospel, if you didn't know anything about Jesus, you're reading this story and it seems that Jesus is overpowered. It seems that he's in a corner. He's backed himself into a place where there's no escape. He can't save himself. Yet, if you've been paying attention in Mark's gospel, at a theological level, it's clear that he reigns supreme and something's going to happen even here uh, for the good. And all of these tensions with the religious elite, all these religious leaders in Jerusalem, all these questions about Jesus' authority and, and, and who he is, all of those come to a head in this text as he is asked point blank, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And so we've seen this style of writing from Mark before on a few occasions where Mark will introduce something, he'll change the scene, and then he'll go back to that thing. So we see this in this text with Peter and Jesus. Uh, he mentions Peter first in verse 54. Then he moves on to discuss Jesus' trial in 55 through 65. And then he turns back to Peter in 66 through 72. And so we see a sandwich story. We've had these before. And so when we see that, the question for us as readers, as studiers of Scripture, what is the theological truth that Mark is sandwiching these stories in this way to emphasize. What is it that Mark's trying to get us to see here in telling the story of Peter and then Jesus and then back to Peter? And it's the gospel. The theological truth we should see is the gospel. The trial of an innocent man ends in his death, and the trial of the, the sinner, the denier, the liar, Peter, goes free. This is our hope, that we are the guilty and we get to go free, and the one who was innocent, he's paid our penalty. He's bore the wrath of God that was, that was rightly ours. And so we get to go free. And not only do we get to go free, we get to share in this king's inheritance. Everything that is his is ours in Christ because Jesus took our penalty. So watch how Mark does this. He's, he's doing this uh, for us intentionally. Watch how he does this, even this contrast for us. Even in the setting, even in the scene that he paints before us, uh, look at verse 53, we'll walk through it. And just notice the, the two different scenes, the just physical locations of where this is taking place. Verse 53, and they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and scribes came together. Now here's the switch. And Peter followed at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and it was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. And so these two scenes, scene one when they left the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, he's bound and he's led across the Kidron Valley back into the city of Jerusalem. Remember, they're out in the garden, outside of the city a bit. This is the same Kidron Valley that they're crossing that would have still been blood-stained with the killing of the Passover lambs. Now, there's some incredible imagery for you, right? The Jews have just sacrificed all of these Passover lambs, and now the true Passover lamb being led back into the city for his uh, sacrifice is walking right over the top of the blood-stained dirt. And as they move back into the city, they ultimately lead him to the home of the high priest, Caiaphas. It's already past midnight, but word has traveled, and the Sanhedrin uh, comes together. came marching in by torchlight, and they walk into this place, this courtyard, this place that uh, Caiaphas lives. Jesus likely placed in the middle of a torch-lit hall or a meeting area, uh, and the Sanhedrin, numbering 70 individuals, take their places in a semicircle around Jesus. And presiding over this meeting was Joseph Caiaphas. 
He's the high priest. He's the leader of the Sanhedrin. It's also noteworthy that he is an influential man, a very powerful man, not just in the title that he holds, but history tells us that he served in this position for 19 years when the average high priest served only four years. So a very influential man, very powerful man. And this looks like an official trial in just the scene, the gathering, the the way that it's set up, where they're at. But according to their own rules, it was far from it. There were numerous things, even according to their own rules, that they're doing wrong here. First, they were not to make final judgments at night like this. They needed the next day to make a ruling on their, on their procedures. Second, they were supposed to conduct this in the, the chambers of the temple, not in somebody's house, even the high priest's house. And then third, they were not to try capital offenses during Passover, during their most important religious festival. They were not supposed to try these type of crimes then, or at least what they're, uh, the alleged crimes. Nonetheless, they begin this charade of a trial, and they're, they're trying desperately to find two witnesses that will agree so that they can have this conviction, so they can sentence Jesus to death. That's what they're after. We've seen that all the way back from chapter 3 of Mark. We know that's what their, their goal is. So that's scene one. Scene two Mark has already introduced us. Peter also leaves Gethsemane in a bit different way. He leaves Gethsemane running, uh, fleeing. In fairness to Peter, I think you have to ask what else could he do? (laughs) What else was there left for Peter to do? I mean, think about it. He already tried to cut the head off of one of the mob members. Jesus quenched the idea of any type of uh, physical violent resistance, right? Jesus heals Malchus's ear. So Peter realizes, hey, Jesus has set his face to this mission. He's letting them take him. He's ultimately going to his death, which he's already predicted numerous times. What was Peter to do? What choice did he have? What was left for him to do? So he leaves the garden. He flees the garden. But note here, I think it's important, though he left the garden, though he fled the garden and Peter and Jesus was left alone, it appears Peter is still trying to keep his word here. What he promised to do in verse 29. Remember, he, he said that he would never leave or forsake Jesus. He, he would be with him. Jesus, I mean, Peter shows back up here in our text this morning. It, it appears that he's trying to keep his word here. And somehow he's managed to get back into Caiaphas's courtyard, unnoticed with the flood of guests that are there. But there's still risk here for Peter. He's still got his neck on the line here. I mean, think about this. Just an hour before this, he'd shown himself to the entire mob not only just had shown himself associated with Jesus in front of that mob, he lops off Malchus's ear, becoming the central person in that moment. Everyone's seen his face and would have been memorable from the garden. On top of that, verse 54, you read that he was warming himself by the fire. In the Greek, the literal translation is he was toward the light. His face was illuminated. He wasn't hiding. He wasn't in the shadows. He would have been recognizable. It's not like a lot, I mean, for us, this has been a week since we've read this. For them, this was just a short time. They would have recognized him. And you see what Mark is doing here. Even in the setting, even in the, in the description of their locations, Mark is setting the stage for an obvious contrast. He's showing us Christ, the solid rock who is on trial before this group of elite religious leaders and a very high, uh, or a very influential high priest. And then on the other hand, you have Peter, his name is Peter. Petros, who is supposed to be the rock, that's what his name means, but instead of being a solid rock like Christ, he's a rock that crumbles. He's a rock that is broken. And so let's see these two trials, and let's see how this unfolds. 
So number one, see the trial of Jesus, the solid rock. Look at verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with, not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. The Sanhedrin starts this prosecution by bringing people to give testimony that will convict Jesus. Their accusation, see verse 57, at least one of their accusations was partially true. Jesus did indeed say earlier in his ministry that this temple would be destroyed and that it would be rebuilt in three days. Jews understood that, and at least some of them heard him say that and understood him to mean Herod's temple, this beautiful structure, this massive building, a a wonder of the world at this time, thought that he was talking about that temple when actually he was talking about his body. But yet even this partial truth that they misunderstood could have earned him the death penalty. Jeremiah chapter 26, a similar thing happens in Jeremiah's prophecy, uh, predicting the destruction of, of a temple. And, and, and yet, even though this could have been something they could have latched onto, even here their stories were not adding up, so they couldn't convict. They had the best witnesses that money could buy, and they still couldn't get a corroborated story. They can't find anything to pin on him. And as you can imagine, this infuriated the Sanhedrin. They've been plotting, they've been planning to do this for some time now, figuring out the best time to do this. Let's go in at night, let's go under the cover of darkness, and let's, let's take him, and we'll do this trial, and we'll sentence him to death. And now they've come time for that moment. You can imagine the tension, the pressure that's on them. They, they're, they're at that moment, and they're far too close. They've come way too far in this plan to kill Jesus for their plan to fail. So they're, they're furious, they're frustrated. And so embarrassed and furious, Caiaphas, in verse 60, if we continue reading, says, stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is is that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Jesus wouldn't validate their ignorant accusations by even opening his mouth. He wouldn't even give them that much uh, credit. Even more significantly, Isaiah 53 is is fulfilled here in Christ. Written uh, hundreds of years before Christ is ever born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He just remained silent. And at this point, Caiaphas has had enough he was already mad, and now he's asked him a direct question, and Jesus doesn't, doesn't even give acknowledgement to this question. He just remains silent, and so Caiaphas is livid. In Matthew's chapter 26, in Matthew's version of the gospel account here, he shows that he actually put Jesus under an oath by the living God. He says, I adjure you by God. In other words, swear to God. Say this before God. Mark 61 tells us what he asked him to say. It says, again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? So two questions here that he's asking. Are you the Christ? In other words, are you the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the one that's come to set Israel free? And are you God? The word blessed here in the New Testament is used exclusively for God, for divinity. Are you the Messiah? And are you God? 
It's interesting here that the strongest probably, you can check me on this, I'm not certain, but the strongest Christological statement, the strongest statement about Jesus in Mark's gospel to this point is from the unbelieving Caiaphas. He mentions his humanity. He mentions his deity. He mentions that he's the Messiah that's come to save Israel. He has no understanding of what this means, but even his accusation, there's incredible truth here. <laughs> it's interesting. The next time we see a, a confession like this is from a Roman soldier that's physically killing Jesus. At this point, Jesus doesn't have to say anything. He doesn't have to speak up. He could have remained silent even here, fulfilling Isaiah 53. But now was the time. Now was the time. It was the moment that he has to speak because he, he has truth to share. And his next words are the only words that he spoke to the religious leaders in this whole scene so far. And they're terrifying words. Verse 62. And Jesus said, I am. It's clear from that what he's saying. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Don't miss what Jesus is saying here. Let's unpack this a little bit. This statement is a short statement from Jesus, but it's full of incredible truth. It's a combination of a confession and simultaneously a warning. And what he's really doing is he's, he's combining three Old Testament passages here, three Old Testament verses, uh, and all three of these passages in the Old Testament have a common theme, have a common setting as they're given in the Old Testament, and that's the theme of judgment. Theme of judgment, that God is judge. He's already said, I am, using divine language, the same language that Moses would have heard at the burning bush. He's already used language that would say that, yes, I am God, I am Him. But then these three verses from the Old Testament that he uses, and listen for the language, how it's similar. Isaiah 52, 8, eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord of Zion. So there's part. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, there's your language, until I make your enemies your footstool. And then Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw, the, saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. So what Jesus is doing is taking Isaiah, he's taking the Psalms, he's taking Daniel, and he's crafting them into one sentence that's an answer to Caiaphas' question. And in each part, Isaiah, Psalm, and Daniel, the context in the Old Testament passage is judgment. And so it's clear what Jesus is doing here. And they would have heard it resoundingly clear because they do their Old Testaments much better than we do. It's clear what Jesus is saying here. And this is what Jesus is saying. You're judging me, but you have no idea that I will be judging you. I'm the judge. Tim Keller says this, Of all the things that Jesus could have said, and there are many themes and images and texts and metaphors and passages in the Hebrew Scriptures that he could have used to tell them who he was, of all the things that Jesus could have said, he says that he's the judge. By his choice of Scripture, Jesus is deliberately forcing us to see the paradox, that there's been an enormous reversal, that he is the judge of the entire world, and yet he is being judged by the world. He should be in the judgment seat. And we should be in the dock in chains. Everything is upside down. That's what Jesus is saying. You ask me these questions, you've paraded me into this trial, but I am the true judge. It's a warning as much as it is a confession. 
And sadly, these religious leaders, they don't have ears to hear. And at this point in this phony trial, uh, it just turns into a brawl, an all-out riot, just an awful scene. Verse 63, as we continue to read. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Oh, friends, the atrocities of this night. Kent Hughes says there was damnation in hell in this room as they condemned their Messiah to death. It says that some spit on him. The grossest of insults. I mean, that, that's gross in our day. It's gross in theirs as well. Biblically, it was gross in Numbers chapter 12. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, this was an insult. They spit on him. It says that someone threw a cloak over his head so that he couldn't see. And as he was standing there in darkness, not able to see anything, they repeatedly beat him in the head with their knuckles, punching him in the face. And here's the reality, friends. The same hands that he created, his workmanship, those hands that he formed and fashioned were striking him in the face. And then in mockery, they ask him, tell us, prophesy. If you're really God, tell us who it is that's hitting you. Can you even do that much? Can you even tell us who is hitting you? Unknowingly, they were fulfilling a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, the prophet Isaiah says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Everything Jesus is doing here is fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that was said about what it would look like when the Messiah came and would give his life. And then the guards, it says to close that verse, the guards, they just followed in the example of their religious leaders. The religious leaders take their turn at treating Jesus like a punching bag, and the guards just follow suit, and they take off where the religious leaders left. And friends, here's the glory in all of this gore, is that our rock was unmoved. That Jesus Christ, the solid rock, he did not crack, he did not falter, Look at what the, what the word says of Jesus in, 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 in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Isaiah 1.18, the stone that the builder rejected has become the chief cornerstone. 1 Peter chapter 2, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, friends. The scriptures talk about Christ as the rock, and here Christ is showing why. Our rock, the rock of our salvation was unshakable even there. Even in this torture, even in this agony, he endured this torture for our redemption. Christ would not be broken for anything. Mark wants to show us that while Jesus is enduring this torture, while he's going through this kind of physical pain and suffering, his abuse for his messianic claim, for claiming the truth that he is God, Peter was deliberately denying Jesus. We see the second trial. So we see Christ, the unshakable rock, the rock that won't break, the solid rock. And secondly, we see Peter, the rock that crumbled. 
We've heard all these titles, right? Like, my ride or die, <laughs> my right-hand man, my partner in crime, my main man, someone who's got my back. Well, a short time earlier, Peter had pledged, verse 29, if you have your Bibles open, you can see it right there. Even if all the other disciples fall away, Jesus, I will not. I'm not going to fall away. And then he repeats it in verse 31 and says, he takes it even further. Even if I have to die, Jesus, I won't deny you. In other words, Jesus, I'll be your ride or die. Whatever it means. I'll go with you to the grave. I'll be your sidekick. Now we find him, and only him, by the way, drawing close to the place where Jesus is being held. He's in this, this courtyard, in this area of, of at Caiaphas' house. And so maybe he does have Jesus' back. As you're reading this for the first time, if you don't know what's about to happen here, you're reading this thing, well, maybe he does. He came back. Maybe, maybe Peter is going to put his neck on the line. Maybe he is going to be there for Jesus, even if it cost him his life. Maybe his claim was sincere in verses 29 and 31. In verse 66, we continue. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. So this young servant girl of the, of the high priest, he, she comes up and she simply asks Peter if, if he was the, one, of the, one of the ones with Jesus, following Jesus. And giving his earlier promises of loyalty, uh, his statements about walking with Jesus even if it cost him his life, we would expect here that he would step up and with confidence declare, yes, I'm one of his followers. I've spent my life with him. I've spent these last years with him. I've watched him do incredible things and you're killing him. Yet he doesn't. He tells her no. And then he goes further to say, I don't even understand what you're talking about. I don't know if there's a language barrier here. But I don't even know what you mean. To avoid further scrutiny from her, he tries to get away from her. And he moves from the courtyard into the entryway of the house. Uh, so he walks a short distance over to another location just trying to get away from this girl. And as he does that, the rooster crows for the first time. You would think people would recognize the rooster, and think back to Jesus' words. You'll deny me before the rooster finishes his business. But Jesus is so caught up in this moment in denying Jesus, he doesn't. And Peter, Petros, is beginning to crack. Let's continue reading verse 69. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And here we, we have the servant girl, again, she's followed him. And, and, and I think through, through her, God himself is persistent in pursuing Peter. He comes up and, and, and others are joining and there's starting to be some people around and, and they begin to say, this is, this, is, this is one of them. James Edwards says in his commentary, a change in place is no substitute for a change in heart. Like a guilty conscience, the servant girl accuses Peter for a second time. And so here we have Peter, he's on the hot seat. Our second trial is in full swing. He's on the witness stand. And in this second uh, trial, our, our text here, Peter, is, uh, he has a chance. He has a chance to tell the truth, a chance to name the name of Christ, to stand up, to be a man, to, to, to take some uh, courage and, and stand up for Jesus. And the one who only a short time earlier he'd said he'd be willing to die for, in verse 7, he unfortunately doesn't. It says he denied it again. He denies him again. 
The verb here for deny in the Greek is in the tense that would show us that he kept on denying. It was an ongoing denial. It wasn't just a slip of the tongue. Like, oh, I didn't, I didn't mean to you know, say that I didn't know you, Jesus. He was repeating this. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know this man. Quit asking me. I don't know him. And Petros, Peter, the rock, is fracturing even, even further. Verse 70, if you continue reading. After a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are Galilean. And he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Peter fell Jesus three times in the garden. Now he, he fails him three times in the courtyard of the high priest. Before, in the garden, he was asleep when he should have been praying. Now he denies Jesus when he should have been professing him. Lest you enter into temptation, Peter. Stay awake and pray, lest you enter into temptation, Peter. The bystander says, certainly you're one of them. You're a Galilean, I can tell it. I can tell it in your accent. You're Galilean, I know you're one of them. And this pushes Peter over the edge. The, the evidence is starting to stack up against him, right? And it pushes him over the edge. It, it, he puts a divine curse on himself in verse 71. Modern way of saying this would be, uh, God, strike me dead. Strike me dead if what I'm saying is a lie, right? Hear that kind of thing in our, in our culture, in our language today. This is the kind of thing he's doing. By God, I adjure you, the high priest says to Jesus. Well, that's what Peter is doing here. By the living God. I do not know this man of whom you speak. This man. This man. This man is the one that Peter had been following now for years. This man is the one that he had watched heal a paraplegic. This man is the one he'd watched cast demons out of someone. This man is the one that he had watched walk on water and who himself had walked towards until he began to take his eyes off Jesus and Jesus saved him from those waves. This man is the one he'd watched raise the dead to life. This man is the one that he'd watched calm hurricane storm winds by speaking to them. This man, Peter? And yet Peter didn't even want to mention him by name. Wouldn't even give him the dignity of calling him by his name. Just says, I don't even know this man. In church, lest we point a finger at Peter too quickly, let's not remember that when we take our eyes off Jesus, when we're consumed with how others view us, when we care more about our reputation than lost souls, when we care more about material things or stuff in this world or even our family before Jesus, this is exactly what we're doing. We have the opportunity to name the name of Jesus and to live lives that are centered in the gospel, to live lives that are honoring and worshipful to Jesus. And instead we say, I don't know this man. Maybe not with our words. You may never have the audacity to say that with your mouth. How often does my life, church family, how often does my life look like, I don't know this man? Unknown to Peter, because he's so caught up in denying Jesus, Unknown to Peter, the Lord is now at this point being led out of the chamber where he's been beaten. Luke gives us a more full explanation of verse 72 in our text. But Luke says this. Peter said, man, I don't know who you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Here's the part that Luke adds. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter. 
And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Immediately following this third, now sworn before God, denial of Jesus, Peter looks up and he sees the torn uh, flesh of Jesus. He sees the bleeding face of Jesus. Their eyes lock in that moment, a moment that Peter will never forget. Can you imagine the pain of that moment for Peter? (laughs) If you've ever been raised around a farm, you know that roosters don't just crow once and then stop. They have sort of this window where they just crow. Almost on a timer. And the rooster crows. Peter remembers the words of Jesus. And then it crows again and he remembers again. And then it crows again and he remembers again. And he just keeps remembering this word, these words from Jesus. You're going to deny me, Peter. No, I won't. Can you imagine the pain? This broke him. In the very moment that he was denying Jesus, Jesus was being beaten. As soon as these words were leaving his lips, I don't know this man, their eyes lock and he sees the pain that Jesus is in. In the very moment of his sin, Jesus' blood was flowing. It reminds us of Romans. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the very moment of our rebellion, Jesus' body was being broken and he was overwhelmed. He was overwhelmed by his understanding of his own betrayal, of his own cowardice. Luke says a little differently than, than Mark. He went out and wept bitterly. Wept bitterly. Broken. Sinclair Ferguson says this, that that look from Jesus when their eyes locked was to be his salvation. For he saw in those eyes not condemnation, but compassion. And this was the turning point of his life. Now, in the most painful and memorable of ways, Peter saw himself as he really was, and he repented, and he was made into that great apostle that he was to be. The same apostle, church family, that would love Christ so deeply that he would go on to give his life tortured as a martyr for Jesus. That's the same one in our text today. This wrecked his world to see Jesus and what Jesus endured for him in the very moment that he was denying him. And here's where I want us to make some application, church family, in the few moments moments we have left. Number one, see the great price that our Savior has paid for our redemption. Don't miss this in the text this morning, even though you may have heard it countless times. This text is simultaneously the most disgusting and beautiful thing imaginable. It's disgusting in that one so perfect, one so full of compassion, one so full of love and mercy and grace could be treated so shamefully. Like Kent Hughes says, there's nothing but damnation and hell in Caiaphas' house that night. It's disgusting. Yet, it's beautiful. Because even there, even there, our Savior was unrelenting. He would endure even that. And when we get into next week, even more for our redemption. And because he's the rock, he's steady, he's sure. And even there, he's not going to relent. No pain, even this kind of pain and torture could not thwart his eternal plan to redeem us and make us his children. Friends, if there are any of you today that have not come to this king and repented of your sins, see in the text, this was done for your salvation. You can come to him today and confess your sins, put your faith and trust in his finished work, and he'll save you. Number two, 
Let Jesus' example of faithfulness push you to be faithful in the life that he's called you to. Whatever he's placed before you. He's won the victory, friends. He's won the victory. If Christ, our solid rock, can endure this kind of torture, this type of pain, and be unshaken and unbreakable, and this is the cornerstone, Christ is the cornerstone that we, the church, are built upon, then there is nothing that's going to come your way tomorrow, this week, this year, uh, five years from now. There's nothing that's going to come your way that he's not already uh, has the ability and, and desire to walk you through for his glory. We have no excuse. The same spirit that will, in a few short days, in Mark's gospel, raise Christ from the dead is living in us. That's incredible news. There's incredible hope in that. No matter what torture we go through, no matter what, uh, what sin we have to endure, he's faithful. And third, let Peter's example of unfaithfulness encourage you to run to Christ even in your failures. All right? Peter would repent. Peter would turn to Christ for forgiveness. He would receive full pardon. Here's the incredible truth of the gospel. Even the guilty one that was on trial in our text, even when he confesses his guilt, he's forgiven fully. There's now no condemnation for Peter that he confesses his sin and runs to Christ. God used him in incredible ways to spread the gospel all over the known world. You and I are here today as a result of Peter's faithfulness. His desire to take the gospel the Gentile world, there's hope for me and you in our failures. And that hope, church family, is not that we'll do better next time. That, that next time maybe we won't deny Christ. Our hope is not in a, in a do better next time kind of mentality. Our hope is in the grace that saves us, the grace that, that, that Christ is demonstrating here in his death that saves us. It'll purify us. It'll sanctify us and, and make us in the image of Christ. He sustains us until he calls us home. That's our hope. Not that we're going to be perfect. But that in our sin, he's faithful. This is not just Peter's story. It's each and every one of our stories. So at the risk of letting my church history nerdiness show a bit, I want to conclude. I want to end our time together by showing you one of these examples from from years gone by. The Christ-centered exposition recounts this story of Balthazar Hubenmeyer. How about that for a name, right? Jess has already nixed it for our next child, so have no fear. Balthazar Hubenmeyer uh, has been called the Simon Peter of the Anabaptists, living in the 16th century, so 1500s. Uh, he was the movement's greatest theologian, wrote incredible um, tomes of theology, while also leading a movement in the 1500s where over 6,000 people trusted Christ, gave their lives to Jesus. He led that many folks to know the Lord. But, because of severe persecution, he would also compromise and deny Jesus. That's why he's called the Simon Peter of the Anabaptists. He denies Jesus, not once, but on two different occasions. Renounces his faith. Yet, like Peter, he was brought by God's Spirit to a place of repentance. He confessed. He would actually write in his his writings, Oh God, pardon me my weakness. It is good for me that you have humbled me. That even in his denying of Christ, even that was used for his own humility and sanctification. And so, on the third time, third time that he was tortured, Hubemeyer remained true to Jesus. In March, March 10th of 1528, Hubemeyer was burned at the stake. And as he walked toward the flames where he would ultimately be consumed, the entire crowd heard him say, Oh my gracious God, Grant me grace in my great suffering. 
They would go on to write of his death, that as the flames engulfed his beard and his hair, the last words that he uttered were, Oh, my heavenly Father, oh, my gracious God and my Jesus. Witnesses reported that in his death he appeared to feel more joy than he did pain. Friends, even in our darkest of places, there is grace and there is forgiveness, and God lavishes forgiveness on any sinner that will humble himself and come before Christ, confess his sins, and trust in Christ. Our great king, the one who will soon face the cross in our text in Mark, has made that kind of forgiveness possible. Praise be to God. Let's pray.